themselves. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts this evening as we continue our study of the Book of Glory, which is from the Gospel of John, as if you didn't know. We've said that so many times, but nevertheless. Uh, so we ask your blessing on our efforts this evening, and may your Holy Spirit always be with us to help us to hear what you want us to hear, not necessarily what is said up here. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Well, tonight we are going to continue, and I want to welcome a few new people that uh, were just joining us for the evening, um, or this evening. Uh, so, uh, and I want to chastise all of those that should be here and aren't. But we just have to kind of uh, put up with that. Okay. Before we get into our lesson for this evening, uh, there's a, a few comments that that I'd, I'd like to really make. Uh, regarding the Book of Glory, as we've mentioned before, the second half of the Gospel of John is called the Book of Glory. The first half is called the Book of Signs, as I uh, sort of discussed briefly last week. In the Book of Signs, the earlier the first half, Jesus is trying to convince and preach and educate the Jewish people primarily. Remember, at one point in the Gospel, not necessarily Gospel of John, but in the Synoptics, uh, when Jesus is asked about going to Samaria and so forth, he said no, that his role was to preach to the lost children of Israel. And so the first half of the gospel is really directed primarily to the Jewish people, but obviously in the long run to everyone. The second half of the gospel, the book of glory, is focused and directed to everybody because Christ's passion, death, and resurrection and the benefits thereof is for everybody. Those who lived before Christ, during the time Christ was here on earth, and afterwards, all to the end of time. So, the whole idea of the redemption or the atonement that we had talked about last week is really for the benefit of all mankind. And it is something that, by the time you get out of this class, in another eight weeks, seven weeks after tonight, I really hope you understand what the atonement was and how it was um, reconciled, how it was uh, completed, you might say, in the death and resurrection of Christ. Okay. Another thing about the Book of Glory, particularly the chapters 13 through 17, these are unique to the Gospel of John. You will not find them in any of the other three Gospels. They are unique to the Gospel of John. If they were not in there, we would not really have some of the 
details, particularly the details on Christ's last instructions to the apostles. All right. Or, or <coughs> excuse me, um, the whole uh, essay, you might say, on the coming of the Holy Spirit and the purpose and role of the Holy Spirit. That is only in the Gospel of John. The Holy Spirit is mentioned but very briefly in the other Gospels, which we call the Synoptic Gospels. And lastly, uh, the teaching on love of neighbor. That is in tonight's lesson, and it carries through uh, all four of those chapters, all right, 13 through 17. And so these are unique um, items and that's, or, or lessons, and that's why we really have to pay a lot of close attention to what they mean. Because particularly the whole idea of love of neighbor, people today, in today's society, have the total wrong impression of what that means. Last Sunday, here at St. Clair, or actually Saturday night, I don't know about Sunday, but Saturday night, uh, Father Sherwin gave a beautiful homily. How many of you were at the Saturday evening vigil mass? And uh, did you catch the essence of Father's homily? Unfortunately, he was totally wrong. <laughs> it was a beautiful homily, but he was talking about romantic love. All right? And, and that's in there. But it's a very minor portion of what Christ is talking about in the gospel. All right. And so I want to get into that in a little more detail in a few minutes. Another important aspect of the book of glory is that it parallels the book of Deuteronomy chapters 27 through 33 where Moses is presented as giving his last instructions to his disciples and last warnings, the blessings and the curses, etc., very much like the essence of this book of glory from the Gospel of John. And so what John is doing is he is setting up Christ, or Jesus in this case, as the new Moses. Moses was the most influential person in the Old Testament. The single most influential person in the Old Testament. Jesus is the most influential person not only in the New Testament but in the whole Bible because everything in the Old Testament points in some way, not by name, but in some way to the presence of Jesus Christ. So Moses, I mean, I'm sorry, Christ is replacing, according to John, Moses as the most important person in all of life. Now, that might be just ho-hum to you people today. But can you imagine the impact on the Jewish people at the time this book was written? Here, 
for centuries the Jewish people had idolized Moses. And that's right, they should have. He was a wonderful, holy person. But now he's being replaced by Jesus Christ. Can you see how that would set up sort of a, a flag or a caution to these people? Whoa, whoa, I gotta step back and think about this now for a few minutes. Alright. So, we can just say, well, gee, what else is new? I mean, that's, uh, you know, I've been accepting that all my life. And that's fine. But the impact to the people at the time this gospel was written, and for centuries after, and even Jewish people today, who read the New Testament, even if it's out of curiosity, are saying, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute now. How can that be? But if you understand the concept of the atonement as we talked about it, it stands to reason that Christ is the most important person for all time because he was God. Right? And he gave his human life as a sacrifice to make atonement, to make reparation for the sins of all mankind. Now, one person, one human, ordinary human being, couldn't do that because an ordinary human being could never make reparation for his own sins, let alone anyone else's. Because what could one individual offer the Father in reparation for his own sins? Can anyone think of anything? No. And that is why God, knowing that, had to come to earth in the form of man to give himself back as the sacrificial lamb or the atoning offering for all mankind because he was divinely perfect. No one else is divinely perfect. Some people might think they're perfect. That's another thing. But divinely perfect, uh-uh. No one. And so Christ, being divinely perfect, offered himself back to the Father in reparation for sin. Not only was it in reparation for sin, but it was also an act that curtailed the power of Satan. Prior to Christ's death and resurrection, Satan had full reign over mankind because there was no Holy Spirit available for the individual. The Holy Spirit was in existence, obviously, because he was God and always was in existence, but he was not available. We'll learn more about that next week in chapter 14. But because there was no Holy Spirit available to the individual, because Christ had not come and made this reparation to repair the sins of all mankind, Satan had free reign up till this time. But afterward, and you can see that 
if you read the whole gospel, or the whole Bible over a period of time, certainly not in one or two days like you read a novel, uh, but you'll see the tone, the tone of people, the tone of what's going on, the history. It changes dramatically in the New Testament. And the tone is much more conducive to a relationship with Christ, with God the Father, and with the Holy Spirit. And that is because this reparation has been made. All right, let's move on. As we said last week, the Book of Glory is really a battle between our will and giving our will to God. In other words, we observing God's will in place of ours. Now, you might say, well, how can you do that? Well, I agree, it ain't easy. But that is the essence of a relationship. That is what we are striving for. And that is what really Christ is asking of us, is to give our will to him. Now you might say, well, gee, I'm a parent, and I've got children, and I've got responsibilities, and I've got this, and I've got that to take care of, and so, fine. God understands all of that. But when you give your will to the Father, through the teachings of Christ. It makes all of those other things that you are responsible for a lot easier to manage. Much more so than you would think. And so I am asking you to try it. Try offering the Father your will. But mean it. Don't do it just in words. You've got to really mean it. And so I'm saying, take your time and understand what you're doing and do it in the spirit of prayer. Prayer is so important. All of this information that you're gathering here at these lectures is not going to do you any good if you don't take it into your heart and pray with it. And I don't mean just, uh, oh, Thank you, Lord. Praise be the Lord. and Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, and so forth and so on. No, no, no. How many of you do not really know your neighbor, your next-door neighbor, or your across-the-street neighbor? You might say hello and good morning and so forth. But have you ever invited them into your house for a cup of tea or coffee? How many of you... I'm not going to ask you to raise hands because it'd probably be everybody, okay? i got to be careful because my, na- my neighbors are right here tonight. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I, I w- but that's the point that I'm making. That's the difference between true prayer and just a Haya sign, okay? You invite Christ into your space, your time, your day. And you spend five or ten minutes in prayer. Now, 
you might say, well, gee, I can't afford that. I just don't have five or ten minutes. Well, then there's something wrong with your schedule. Okay? Or you might just have to set the alarm five or ten minutes earlier. Make sure you're awake, you know, when you sit down to do that. But even so, you know, all kidding aside, all the information in the world is not going to do you any good if you don't pray. That's the way it gets from the mind to the heart. You know what the definition of a lecture is? How the notes of the instructor become the notes of the student without going through the brains of either. <laughs> we don't want that. A relationship is fostered and nourished by prayer, which means that you've got to spend time alone with your God, you know, for at least five or ten minutes. And once you start doing that and making a habit of it, it will grow on you and you'll see that five or ten minutes grow into a much longer period of time and you will make time for it. I guarantee it. Just like the guy on Men's Warehouse. I guarantee it. <laughs> One of the subjects in tonight's lesson is the subject of love. All right? And in your handout from last week, in your handout from last week, I believe on the last page, is a little diagram on love. Now, in the large spectrum of love, there's actually three kinds of love. All right? And we're going to put them up here so that you have a chance to see what I'm talking about. Well, sure. But all right. Is that, is that better? Agape love. Filio and eros. Let's start from the bottom. Eros is the word we get erotic from. In other words, this is sexual love, intimate love. Not all sex, as we know, is love, but that's where it comes from, all right? Filio, the Greek word for brother, all right? Brotherly love, family love. Agape love is unconditional love, all right? And this is what we're really talking about. These two can be included. Brotherly love and erotic or eros can be included in agape love if it is sincere and honest. But agape love is unconditional love. Now, that doesn't mean that you become a doormat and 
allow people to just kind of walk over you. That's not what we're talking about. The other thing, it is not It is not how you like something. What is the difference between this and this? Liking something, whether you know, it's like one of the presidents didn't like broccoli. All right. Uh, liking something is an emotion. It is something that you can rarely control. You either like broccoli or you don't. Okay? And all of the fixings and the stuff you put on it is not going to change it if you don't really like it. Well, I'm only using that as an example. That might be the same with the neighbor down the street. You don't like him. And you're not going to like him. That's because this is an emotion. This requires a decision. Big difference. A decision. You have to decide that you are going to like somebody, right? And how do you reflect that? First of all, this has got to come as a gift from God to you. And almost everybody, I don't know of anyone, who was not at least given a portion of love when they are born and when they are baptized. So that is the essence of the small circle. It comes from our knowledge and our relationship with God. God is love. All right? But love, in the sense of agape, which is a Greek word for unconditional, is made up of all of these components and more. Starting out with respect. You may not like a person, but you still have to respect him or her. And then compassion, forgiveness, integrity, understanding, charity, humility, and there are other virtues that come under agape love. This is something that we have to really kind of get in our mind and our heart and be willing to do as part of giving our will to God. Okay. Now that doesn't mean that you have to walk around with a halo, you know, almost showing and be just sweetness and light. We can't change our personalities that easy. We can try, but you can't change overnight. However, keep in the back of your mind that this kind of love comes directly from God and is part of God showing through you. All right? God is love. And if you start to exercise this by showing respect, showing compassion, regardless of who or what, the individual, the recipient of your love, agape love, is, or what they've done. Let me give you a little example. When I first went to work for a bank many years ago, 
I probably wasn't there a half a day when somebody started to, or several people started to come in and warn me about a given person. Be careful of so-and-so. I mean, he is just death. He is difficult to work with, and he's this and he's that. And you, your, your job is going to require interfacing with him, but just, you know, beware. And I thought, well, all right, but I'm not going to make his problem or the company's problem with him my problem. So I thought, well, Lord, the first day I had to go in and uh, get some information from him. I thought, you know, Lord, here I go, you know. Uh, support me and back me up. And I thought, well, I'm going to go in and, and face the lion. Well, what do you want? He said, you know, that's the way he starts out. I hear you're new around here. Yeah. So I said, yeah. I said, you know, I need some information and perhaps it might be too much or too you too busy for uh, to give this to me uh, today, but uh, could you? Uh, he said, what do you mean I can't do it or I'm too busy? Yeah. What I did was appeal to his sort of pride or whatever. Anyways, little by little, I could get stuff out of this guy that nobody else could, simply because I went in with a totally different attitude. And that is how you show agape love, is through your attitude. Sometimes it doesn't take words, it just takes a presence. And that's what we're trying to get across. Any questions on that subject? Yes, Anna. Um, what if somebody really hurts you that way? Yes. I mean, the only thing I can think to do is to turn it over to God. That's right. And with that, he will give you the ability to at least be civil, be respectful to that person. And that is what you have to do. There is no choice. I had somebody question me in a slightly different way uh, on that very point one time before. He said uh, something about, what if the person that you uh, that has some, something against you or you have something against him won't even bother to talk to you, won't be, you know, at least respectful? Uh, why should I forgive that person? It was more on forgiveness than on love, but nevertheless, Forgiveness is part of love. And I said, you still have to forgive. Take the burden off of yourself and put it on that person by forgiving him. You know, there's something in the Bible that says, uh, love your enemy and even heap red hot coals on him or her by being overly nice at times because perhaps they might get the point. It might rub off, you see. Uh, there are ways of handling that. It's sure hard when you don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> to love them, it's sure hard if you don't like them. <laughs> well, you see, 
you don't have to think about it in the modern American understanding of love, you know. Here's this gruff old guy down the street, and you don't like him. You're not going to love him, after all. No. But you still have to be respectful, all right? And as you would to your friend or neighbor across the street whom you still have never invited in, you still got to say, good morning, Joe, or whatever, you know. Okay. Yeah, you're right, Gene. It's not easy, but it's worth trying. Yes, Norm? Kill them with kindness. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yes, sir. Right. Yes. Thank you. Romans 12. All right. Good. Um, so keep that in mind. Okay. Let's move on. All right, because we're not quite finished with uh, God's commandment to love, but I wanted to get that out up front because everything else in this gospel is based on that. And if you get into John's first letter, there's even more of his uh, teaching on love. All right, so let's turn to chapter 13. You go to page 67. Down in the commentary section, at the bottom of the, that big uh, paragraph in the middle, the last sentence, love is the path to God. But John's depiction of love is very specific, laying down one's life for others. And that, of course, is exactly what Christ did. He laid down his life for the ransom of all mankind because no one else could do it. I want to sort of go through the passage on the washing of the feet because there's so much in there that you may have overlooked uh, or missed, and I want to bring out some of the meaning in there. Before the Feast of Passover, now there's a discussion and there has been a debate for 2,000 years on whether the Last Supper was the actual Passover meal or was it the night before the Passover. And John implies that it was the night of preparation rather than the night of Passover. Remember, Passover goes from sunset to sunset, and not always on Friday. It can be any day of the week, because it is determined by the first full moon, the evening of the first full moon in springtime, all right, after the vernal equinox. Easter is always determined by the first Sunday after the first full moon in the vernal equinox, after the 21st of March, 20th or 21st. All right. So that's why they often coincide, uh, but Easter of all is always uh, obviously on Sunday. 
the Passover can be any day of the week. Before the Feast of Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come. Now, that's a strange statement, but if you're familiar with the other Gospels, remember, for example, in the story of uh, the marriage feast at Cana, when Mary, his mother, says to Jesus, uh, they've run out of wine, they have no wine. And Jesus says, uh, what does this, how does this concern you? Or me, my hour has not come. When Jesus is referring to hour, it is not, he's not referring to a specific 60 minutes. He's referring to a specific point in his mission. The mission of being the sacrificial lamb to be offered back to the Father. All right. Jesus knew now that his hour had come to pass from this world to the Father, or to return to the Father. He loved his own in the world, and he loved them to the end. Now, underline that word, or words, to the end, right? because it can refer to a measure of love, or it can refer to time. And in this case, it's both, to the end of time and to the end of any possible measurement. The devil had already induced Judas, son of Simon the Iscariot, to hand Jesus over. So, during supper, fully aware that Jesus had put everything I'm sorry, fully aware that the Father had put everything into his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God, he rose from supper and took off his outer garments. He took a towel and tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and dry them with the towel around his waist. Now, if you have read all of the commentary here, or any of others, you'll know that this particular act, which was very common whenever there were guests uh, invited into a home, or wherever there was a large gathering, a slave, not a servant, but a slave, would be brought in to wash the feet of the guests. This was such a demeaning job uh, that it was only a slave that was given this uh, task. It was not even given to a uh, servant because the servant was it was above their uh, stature and so forth. So Jesus takes on this role of the ultimate servant or slave, you might say. Paul uses that word slave um, in Philippians 2 to describe Jesus' role. He takes this role of the slave to demonstrate the fact that he, Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, is showing agape love in the form of service. Right? That is another 
component of the word love. Service. Important in a way. Because, well, let's read on. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Master, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will understand later. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. That's Peter, you know, foot, foot in mouth. And Jesus answered him, Unless I wash you, you will have no inheritance with me. In two in very important statements. Washing in almost any scene within the Bible always has a baptismal reference. There is always, remember last week we talked a little bit about uh, the ordinary or the earthly meaning of a given story and the spiritual meaning. Almost all of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, is written on two levels. And you can read it purely at face value, the earthly value. But it also has a spiritual value. And in this case, both of these uh, points that are made here uh, have both. All right. What I am doing, you may not understand now but you will understand later. Peter, as you know, was very impetuous, always sort of jumping to conclusions and kind of spurting out statements before he really had time to think. In this case, Jesus wants him to think about this because later, baptism, baptism will become the second most important sacrament in the church, the washing of our souls, releasing us from the consequences of original sin and imbuing or indwelling the Holy Spirit within us and inviting us into the family of the church. So baptism and washing are almost synonymous in this scene. And that is why, if you think about it that way, because without baptism, if Jesus said to Peter, all right, I'm not going to wash your feet, forget it, you know, and he goes to the next guy. Jesus then would not, because Jesus, I mean, Jesus says here, unless I wash you, you will have no inheritance with me, which means that he will not, Peter will not enjoy participation in the benefits of Christ's passion, death, and resurrection and eternal life. And that is what that sentence really means. Inheritance in this case is all things that are participating in all the things that Jesus is. Remember, he says in another, just a moment, in another part, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, he'll say in his priestly prayer, Father, you have given me everything. 
and everything that you have is mine, and everything that I have is yours, etc. So part of that is heaven. And the inheritance is really implying um, eternal life. Yes, sir? Does this mean that uh, Jesus is concerned that Jesus? Uh, I never thought about it that way, but I suppose that's a possibility. Yeah. Uh, he asked if if Peter had not allowed Jesus to wash his feet, would this have meant that he could have been condemned to hell? Uh, off the top of my head, without giving it a lot of thought, I would say probably not, but that possibility is there. Yeah. Okay. So, these are very important points here. The whole idea of baptism being sort of behind the scenes, you might say. Jesus himself never baptized anybody that we know of. But baptism was the beginning of his public life where the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, etc. And this was the way the father sort of anointed Jesus and um, let everybody else know that he was God. Let's go on. Simon Peter said to him, Master then, not only my feet, but my hands and head as well. And Jesus said to him, Whoever has bathed has no need except to have his feet washed. All right? Now, what does that mean? If you think about it in terms of baptism, if you are baptized with all sincerity. Your baptism fully washes your soul free of any sin. But you still have an earthly life surrounding you and the possibility of sinning after that is there. Does that make sense? And that's in reference to the feet. The feet being the lowliest part of the body. For he is clean all over. And so you are clean. But not all. And of course that not all is in reference to Judas. For he knew who would betray him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. Mm-hmm. Actually, he gave him every opportunity to change his mind. But it says that Satan didn't enter Judas until he gave him the more Well, Satan really took hold of him when Judas had already made his bargain with the Pharisees. That was before. Yeah. 
didn't take, you know, Satan didn't possess him, so to speak, beyond his control until after Jesus hands him the morsel. But the pact had already been made, obviously. Now, here is where Jesus speaks to us, not just to the apostles. Do you realize what I have done for you? You call me teacher and master, and rightly so, for indeed I am. If I, therefore, the master and the teacher, have washed your feet, or have baptized you, you ought to wash one another's feet, figuratively speaking, all right? You went next door and said, I want to wash your feet. Uh, can you imagine the reaction you might get, you know? All right. All right. So you, you got you got to bring this a little forward, you know, 2,000 years. All right. Figuratively speaking, if Jesus is willing to take on the role of the ultimate slave, and he is God, we, who are sinful mankind, ought to be able to lower ourselves, if we are so proud, as to serve our neighbor who is in need. Once had a real difficult discussion with someone in a class like this when I <clears throat> gave them the example, if you're walking out of your house or coming out of your house to get in your car to go to the last mass on Sunday and you see your neighbor struggling, he's hanging off of the eaves of the roof because he was up there for some unknown reason and he's falling and he's yelling, help, help, you know. And you say, sorry, I've got to go to Mass. <laughs> I can't be late, right. And I said, you are bound to help this guy out. Forget the Mass. And she said, but you'll still have to go to church. <laughs> no. In that case, the need to help the neighbor overrides the going to church, all right? Or you could say to the neighbor, wait till I come back. <laughs> Since I have given you a model to follow, so that as I have done for you, you should also do. Amen, amen, I say to you, no slave, is greater than his master, nor any messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you understand this, blessed are you if you do it. I am not speaking of all of you, for I know those whom I have chosen, but so that the scripture might be fulfilled, the one who ate my food has raised his heel against me. Now, what does that mean? How many of you have seen the movie Passion of the Christ? Many of you have. Do you remember the scene where Christ is in the garden and you see this white snake sort of, you know, wiggle around and all of a sudden this foot comes down and crushes his head? 
All right. That is a little bit of, you know, Hollywood theatrics. But it comes, it comes right out of the book of Genesis. In the story of Adam and Eve, remember where God condemns the serpent after he has um, enticed Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree? Okay. It says, because you have done this, I'm reading out of Genesis chapter 3. Because you have done this, you shall be banned from all the animals and from all the wild creatures. On your belly shall you crawl and dirt shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he, the offspring of the woman, who is Mary and Jesus, he will strike at your head while you strike at his heel. All right. So, now the reverse is happening. Christ is crushing the head of the serpent through his death and resurrection. And that is, as I said earlier, up until the crucifixion and death of Christ, Satan had full reign and almost unlimited control over mankind because of the fact that sin had so engulfed humankind. But the whole idea of Christ offering his self, his divine human self, in a sacrifice back to the Father has stopped that and has then permitted mankind to return to the Father. Up until that point in time, even those who died in the good graces of God could not enter heaven. They were held back because the sins of mankind had not been yet uh, paid for. Now, with the death of Christ, those who died in the good graces of God beforehand have now or can now be released and enter into heaven. <clears throat> it says, from now on, I am telling you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe that I am. You see the words I am in capitals? All right. In this case, and the Jews would have known this perhaps better than we Christians, that that is in reference to God. In other words, he might, he, let me reword that and say, I am telling you before it happens so that when it happens, in other words, the resurrection happens, you may believe that I am God. That's what it means. In an earlier part, and to some degree in chapters 16 and 17, Jesus will use this phrase, I am, about 21 times in those two chapters. And it's in normal conversation, such as in the uh, first part of that sentence, from now on I am telling you, I am, if you 
start numbering those, you'll see that within these uh, four chapters, uh, the words I am will be used at least 21 times. So, and that is his way, Jesus' way, of saying that I am God. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is an important statement that runs throughout John's Gospel. The whole idea of Jesus being sent by the Father out of love for mankind, the Father's love for mankind, to make reparation for sin that mankind couldn't do. And so this whole idea of uh, being sent by the Father is very important to Christ and should be very important to us. I have a book called uh, Christ the One Sent. S-E-N-T, not C-E-N-T, okay. And it is a beautiful uh, dissertation, you might say, on that very subject. The idea of Christ being sent by the Father out of love. Any questions on this particular section? Yes, Mike. Excuse me. Mike. It generally means uh, I agree. Well, if you've been to Hawaii, you know aloha can mean a lot of things. All right, amen can mean a lot of things also. Uh, but in this case, uh, it would it would be uh, sort of an emphatic assurance. I assure you. Okay, but then if you use it like at the end of uh, a prayer, it generally means I agree. So it can mean a lot of different things. In this case, it means I assure you. So you can't you can't just put one label on that word. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Any other questions on the washing of the feet scene? Okay. All right, let's let's move on then. Uh, Judas betrayal. Uh, I'm I'm not going to read this because it's short, and you've all heard it many times and know it many times. There's a few subject, a few comments that I get almost every time that I teach this subject. Um, about poor Judas, okay? If Judas, excuse me, if Jesus, one of them is, is, and I'm going to ask these questions out loud and then I'll answer them too, but uh, since they're probably in your minds and you're just... You're just too timid to ask out loud. I know. If Jesus was God and knew everything, 
Why would he have chosen Judas as an apostle? Okay. Well, think about the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, as we've mentioned several times, is an allegory, all right? Not two historical people. It's not a history lesson. If it wasn't Adam and Eve, it could have been, you know, Sally and Pete. What difference does it make? If it wasn't, you know, Adam and Eve, it would have been somebody eventually who would have sinned and caused all of these other consequences of the first sin. Okay. In this case, Jesus chose Judas because Jesus knew that there was several betrayers out there possible. And so his 12 apostles ran the whole spectrum of people. There were all kinds of people in there, young and old. There was three sets of brothers. There was a father and a son. So you see, you have a lot of variety in there. Obviously, Jesus probably gave Judas special attention. He was the person who held the purse strings. All right, and he probably gave him every opportunity to change his mind, but Jesus, being God, knew in advance. And he still chose him because if it wasn't Judas, it would have been somebody else. All right. Another question. It might appear to many that Judas was predestined to betray Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. The church does not believe in predestination, except if you're as a, a figure of speech, you might say. Uh, when, when you say, um, oh, I want all of you to be happy, you know, is that predestination? No. no. Jesus or God would say, I would like all of you to return to me and be happy in heaven. Is that predestination? No. That is wishful thinking. Because you know it's not going to happen. All right? So, Judas could have said no at any point in time and changed his mind. Look at Mary. Asked to be a mother when she wasn't married yet. What embarrassment that must have caused her in that culture and time period. She could have said no. I don't want to. She didn't. We all have the opportunity to make decisions to love or to withhold love. And when we hold, withhold love, that's what sin is. You can't put a one-label definition on sin because it can take so many different facets. And in this case, Judas was somebody who wanted more out of uh, Jesus. He wanted to, uh, Jesus to be the Messiah that would overrun the Romans and restore Israel back to the glory 
at the time of King David. And that was strictly an earthly thinking. And Jesus said, no, no way. That's not what we're here for, and that's not what he was here for. So Judas refused to give up his own will. He could have said no, but he didn't. And that was brought out. That was uh, sort of underlined by the fact that he took his own life. Well, her yes, her inclination would have been whatever God wills is fine. But she was also faced with the everyday reality of a very embarrassing situation. Uh, we don't know. That's that's a good subject. We don't know. So you see, even though she was enlightened, you might say, due to the fact that she was without sin, um, she still had to face an earthly embarrassing situation. And she still said yes. Yes, sir. Yes, that's right. And that's the whole objective of this course, is to get us to see that the importance of giving our will to God. All right? In all matters. In all matters. And believe me, that's not easy. I'm not saying that it is. But once you've done it, once you have really done it, and agree to continue to live that way, your life is much happier. Peace that Jesus can only, only Jesus can give comes with that giving of the will. So we're going to be talking about that throughout all of these uh, lectures. <coughs> No, no. He could have at the last minute regretted and begged God for forgiveness. We don't know that. But that, you see, is unlikely when a person commits suicide. But then again, it could have probably affected him so mentally that he wasn't himself. We don't know. And the church says you cannot make a judgment. That's right. Yes, that's part of the other story. Now, let's go on, because we're running short of time. I warned you last week, you know, you're not getting out of here early. The new commandment. When he had left... Oh, wait, wait, I want to... Let's go back up to a uh, the, the line above that. So he took the morsel, and this is Judas. He took the morsel and left at once. And this is John's little way of slipping in something. And it was night. Remember last week I told you that John uses various phrases to indicate things other than what it really seems? Who cares whether it was night? Obviously a dinner is at night, is it not? Okay. 
All right, in this case, he's talking about evil, the presence of evil, and it was night. It was evil reigning in the heart of Judas. Yes, but there, in that case, it was more lacking of understanding, lacking of knowledge. It wasn't evil. Nicodemus was not an evil man. All right. But he was lacking in knowledge and understanding of what Jesus was trying to, to get across. In this case, Judas knew exactly what he was doing and went out and did it. And it was night. When he had left, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. God is glorified in and through Jesus because Jesus has fulfilled the mission, or is about to fulfill the mission for which he was sent, for which the Father sent him. Okay? And that and is a way of glorifying the Father. We too, when we fulfill what is asked of us, whether it be a one-time thing or a lifetime thing, God will glorify us through eternity, all right, and on the last day. My children, I will be with you only a little while longer, and you will look for me, and as I told the Jews, where I go, you cannot come. And so now I say to you, I give you a new commandment. I'm going to stop for a minute and go back up there. As I told the Jews. Well, they were all Jews. Everybody in that room was a Jew. So why would he say this? Because I told the Jews. That sounds almost like, you know, a word that you would sort of spit out. It's because this was written many, many, many years later after Christianity and Judaism had split off, had separated. Uh, and so what John is doing here is making differentiation between the present followers of Christ and those who are about to demonstrate their rejection of Christ. Because he saw both sides, and he's writing this much later. There's these little words slipped in here where you could catch that every so often. There's a real interesting one in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, which uh, many, particularly Protestant people uh, and many Jewish people, uh, feel were definitely written by Moses. Okay? But it talks about things that happened after Moses died. It, you know, the writer of the book of Deuteronomy kind of got a little carried away and in his writing of these things slipped in a few things that didn't happen until long after Moses died. Okay. So every once in a while you catch these little words that sort of help you indicate about when it was written. Okay. Now, you will look for me as I told the Jews, where I go you cannot come. So now I say it to you, I give you a new commandment. Love one another 
as I have loved you, so you also should love one another. Well, this is not a new commandment. In the book of Deuteronomy, it very clearly states, you shall love your, your, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's not new. What is new? In this culture, even though the commandment way back in Deuteronomy, written seven, eight hundred years before Christ, says you were to love your neighbor, the Jewish people didn't. Love to them was strictly filial, family, brotherly love and husband and wife, obviously, and children. But love was very seldom shown outside of the family. And you'll see that even today in Mideastern countries. Love is not extended beyond, even to strangers, as Jesus is telling us to do. It was strictly... Um, Love was strictly within the family and never, never demonstrated in public. That was a big no-no in their culture. Jesus is saying, forget that. You are to love everybody unconditionally. And that is the new part of this. It says, and because of that, this is how you will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another without limit. Yes, sir. All people. Everyone. No limits, no qualifications. Okay? But it isn't affection. See? He's not saying you gotta be sweet and nicey nice. No. Affection is only a small part of love down here. So love does not include affection in this sense. It can later you know, when extended down into the arrows, but not in the agape. All right. Very important, and yet, like I said, Father Sherwin's homily last Saturday, it was a beautiful homily based on some modern-day song that he read the words. Um, and it was very nice, but it was all centered around affection. Okay? Affection and not in the broader sense of agape love. All right, now, Peter's denial. Simon Peter said to him, Master, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now. Underline the word now, if you will, please. Though you will follow me later. Peter said to him, Master, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Here's Peter again, you know, really sticking his neck out. Jesus answered, 
you will lay down your life for me, will you? Hmm. Amen, amen, I say to you, the cock will not crow before you deny me three times. Now this idea of Jesus leaving and uh, in one of the other Gospels, he goes back and forth, you know, for a little while, and you will not see me, and so forth and so on. It can be interpreted in two ways. It could be interpreted that he will die on Friday and rise again on Sunday when they will see him. All right? Or it could mean that he is dying now and going to heaven, and they will die later and see him in heaven, or it could mean they will see him like they will see everyone else at the end of time. So we're not quite sure which of these time periods he's talking about. I would like to think uh, that he's talking about three days later when they see him in his glorified state uh, after the resurrection. Okay. But it is not clear, and scholars, uh, you know, you have as many people thinking one way as, as they do the other. Now, that ends chapter 13. We've got an interesting situation here that I want you to kind of think about. Washing of the feet, okay? which implies love and service. And that is sort of the positive side. The negative side is Judas betrayal. The ultimate in love, the ultimate in evil. Obviously, love wins. Then you have another equation, you might say. The new commandment over Peter's denial. Same kind of thing. Are they equal? The ultimate in love, but not quite the ultimate in evil. Okay. Nevertheless, it is evil, but it is something that is correctable. Whereas, this one wasn't. Well, one is turning your back on God completely. Yes. And the other one is saying, oops, I made a mistake, but you forgive me. Yes. Yes. Well, yes. He went, he went partway back. But you see, he threw the money at them. So he got rid of that, but he still didn't really beg for forgiveness, which he could have. 
even on the cross. That he had crept up to the cross and asked Christ on the cross for forgiveness. Christ would have forgiven him. But that didn't happen. He went out and hung himself. In this case, Peter went out and wept bitterly, as it says. And became the ultimate apostle. So you have a big difference. Christ is always, God is always ready to forgive, regardless of how serious or how big our sin was or is. But you've got to ask for forgiveness. We cannot assume. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, it says, or Paul says, I bear with all of this suffering. Paul is writing this from prison. He says, I bear with all of this suffering for the sake of those whom God has chosen in order that they may obtain the salvation to be found in and through Jesus Christ and with it eternal glory. That means all of us who finally reach heaven will bask in the same kind of glory that Christ is in. You can depend on this, Paul says. If we have died with him, spiritually speaking, we shall also live with him in heaven. If we hold out to the end of our earthly life, we shall also reign with him. But, If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are unfaithful, such as Peter was, he will still remain faithful and forgive us if we are sorry. For he cannot deny himself. In other words, he cannot refuse to love. Because God is love. He cannot refuse part of himself. So the whole idea is we must then bend to his will. And I've made copies of this for everybody, including the challenge that I brought up last week. So I'm going to leave this up there at the door so that you can all take a copy as you leave. And I'd like you to read this and meditate upon it. Uh, frequently, not only during this course, but particularly during Lent. All right. um, you're saying the beginning of an argument for, or behalf, on behalf. Yes. Oh, yes. Sure. I don't know. I'd have to think about that before I expound on it. But uh, uh, let's end with a prayer. Father, we thank you for giving all of this information to us. Help us now to take it into prayer and digest it so that it reaches the heart, not just stuck in the back of the mind. Give us the strength and the courage to open our minds and our hearts and give our will to you so that we are governed by your will rather than our wants and needs. So we thank you for this time together. 
We ask your blessing on our efforts as we go forth studying the remainder of John's Gospel. So we give you praise and thanksgiving in all things. In Jesus' name.